listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you on school and corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have our co-host, Brandon, and special guest, CIA whistleblower, John Karenkow, joining us to talk about the history of the CIA and their torture program and how the U.S. government targets whistleblowers. Thank you so much for doing this interview with us. Oh, my pleasure. So I guess we'll start off with you were in the CIA for a long time and you resigned in 2004. What made you resign? Um, a couple of things. I was recently divorced and my ex-wife and our two sons moved back to Ohio and um, I had joint custody, which was kind of hard to fight for since I was living in, um, well, New York at the time, but, but Washington was my, my uh, formal residence. And um, I knew I'd have to go overseas again soon. I was, I was at a, a high enough grade in headquarters that I was going to be named a station chief for my next tour. And I happened to go back to headquarters from New York one day for consultations. I was standing in the elevator lobby on the first floor of the old headquarters building. I'll never forget it. And somebody had put up a a flyer uh, advertising a class. And the class was called Raising Your Children in a War Zone. And I thought, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. And so I decided... You know, I, I, I remember joking with friends back then that I was one of those rare people who said when they resigned that they did it to spend more time with their family. I actually did it to spend more time with my family. <laughs> <laughs> so you were targeted by the Justice Department. Can you talk about how you were targeted? Yeah. Um, in December 2007, I gave um, a nationally televised interview to ABC News to Brian Ross at ABC News, in which I confirmed that the CIA was torturing its prisoners. I believed from the very beginning of the torture program that it was illegal, in addition to being immoral and unethical. Uh, it was certainly antithetical to what we wanted to accomplish in the so-called war on terror. And I kept waiting for somebody to, to blow the whistle on this illegal program. Nobody did. And I waited for five and a half years and then finally, in December of 2007, I did it. So, just curious, like, who in the civilian government do you think, do you know, knew about it during that five-year time? Like, did Congress know? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Congress, Congress, of course, knew. They were the oversight committees. And even though it was um, a compartmented program, it was a very sensitive program, the Speaker of the House knew, the majority and minority leaders knew, and the members of the intelligence uh, committees knew. They just pretended not to know. Why the silence, if you have a theory? My theory is because Democrats and Republicans alike supported the torture program. You know, in in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, people were panicked, and uh, they were, on Capitol Hill, they were willing to listen to uh, to the advice and recommendations of senior leaders at the CIA, it was those senior leaders who were responsible for the 9-11 attacks. And so when those senior leaders, and I mean people like George Tenet and Steve Kappas and Jose Rodriguez and Kofor Black, went up to Capitol Hill to testify and they said, we need your approval to start torturing people, both Democrats and Republicans alike just fell right into line. 
That is so sickening to me. Um, so after the interview, um, how did the DOJ target you? Well, at first they didn't really target me per se. They began an investigation the day after the interview. And the investigation lasted for a year, from December of 2007 to December of 2008. And then in December of 2008, they sent my attorneys something called a declination letter, saying that they were declining to prosecute me because they said that I had not revealed classified information and thus I had not committed a crime. The truth was that the torture program was the worst kept secret in Washington Everybody knew we were torturing prisoners. The International Committee of the Red Cross had written a report. Human Rights Watch had written a report. Amnesty International had written a report. And so they declined to prosecute me. But then a month later, when Barack Obama was inaugurated, John Brennan, who was the Deputy National Security Advisor, um, asked the Justice Department to secretly reopen the case against me. And that's when the real trouble started. So he can secretly reopen cases. That's very scary. So how did that happen? Uh, I imagine he just sent a memo over to the to the Justice Department and said, and said, do it. Now, in discovery, we we got several memos between John Brennan and Eric Holder. One said one was from Brennan and it said, uh, charge him with espionage. Oh, my. And that's a serious charge. It's, uh, in many cases, a death penalty charge. It's one of the gravest charges with which an American uh, can, be, can be charged. And so, so Holder wrote back and said, my people don't think he committed espionage. And then Brennan wrote back and said, charge him anyway and make him defend himself. And, and that's what they did. But what they wanted to do to try to cover their track was to catch me really committing espionage. And of course, I hadn't committed espionage. So at the time, I was uh, the senior investigator on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Have lunch with foreign diplomats all the time. You talk about politics. And, and you know, I got a call from a Japanese diplomat, the number three at the Japanese embassy. And he invited me to lunch. And at the end of the lunch, he cold pitched me, which means he offered me cash in exchange for classified information. That's entrapment. So I went directly from that. That's exactly what it was. It was entrapment. I went directly to the office of the Senate security officer and to the FBI. And the FBI came to visit me the next day. And they said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to call him back, invite him to lunch, and try to get him to tell you exactly what information he wants and how much money he's willing to pay for it. So I did. We had lunch. I collected the information. I wrote a memo for the FBI, and they asked me to do it a second time and a third time and a fourth time, which I did because I'm a patriot. And so at the end of the fourth lunch, this Japanese diplomat told me that he had been um, promoted and he was going on to his dream job. He was going to be the number two at the Japanese embassy in Cairo. And so I shook his hand and I never saw him again. Well, in discovery, a year later, I've been arrested. We find hundreds of pages of memos from the FBI. And it turns out that there never was any Japanese diplomat. He was an FBI agent undercover trying to get me to commit real espionage. But I kept foiling them because I kept reporting the contact back to the FBI. And finally, one of the FBI agents wrote, we should just end this operation. He's clearly not going to take the bait. 
Yeah, they tried hard to get me. So they tried for over a year. So now in 2012, they charged you. So what, what happened in that year between 2010 to 2012? Well, in that year, I had no idea that my phones were tapped, that my emails were being intercepted, that there were teams of FBI agents following me everywhere. They'd follow me into Target. They followed me into church. They followed me to my kid's school when I went to pick up the kids. I had no idea that I was under 24-hour surveillance like this. Um, but they couldn't collect anything. I wasn't doing anything. And so they came up with five felonies, three counts of espionage, all of which were thrown out, uh, one count of making a false statement, which was also thrown out. And I ended up taking a plea to a reduced charge just to make this whole thing go away. I had spent $1.1 million on attorneys. Holy. I was... Oh, yeah. And this is what they do. What they do is they'll, they'll wait until you go bankrupt, and then they offer you a deal. And so everybody takes the deal to make the thing go away. You know, the federal government wins 98.2% of its cases, according to ProPublica. And so what do you want to do? Do you want to take the 23 months that they're offering you? Or do you want to face, realistically, 18 to 24 years? I, I take the 24 months. And so, and, and in that way, it's kind of biased against the rich because uh, exactly. Holder said too big to... For the rich. Oh, yeah, sorry, for the rich, because too big to, what is it, jail. So you can't run out the money like that. So, wow, that's unbelievable. Right, and they can hold out long enough to get probably the best deal out of anybody. Uh-huh. And, and, yeah, and, and that's really the key. That's why if you're poor or you're black or you're a, a refugee or an immigrant, you're going to get a longer sentence because you have crappy uh, representation. You're probably using a, a public defender. If you're wealthy and white and successful, you're going to have the best lawyer's money can buy. And the truth is that the Justice Department doesn't want to engage in long, drawn-out cases that, that end up going to a jury trial. And so the rich are just simply not the people they go after quick um, question. You had a problem with an attorney also. Would you yes. like to talk about that? Yeah. I think Mark Zaid, frankly, is a, is a con man. And I think he's, he's uh, very likely in the pay of the FBI or the CIA. It's funny. Mark Zaid, um, he purports to be a whistleblower attorney. He's anything but. Uh, I originally hired Mark Zaid in 2007 after I blew the whistle. I had to fire him only three uh, weeks later. And it's because the man just simply wasn't trustworthy. Jeffrey Sterling, another CIA whistleblower, hired Mark Zaid to defend him when he was arrested after being accused of leaking information to uh, the New York Times. And, and Mark Zaid wrote a, a secret memo to the FBI saying, I think my client is guilty. That is, In my own case, that should be after disbarred. I fired him, he should be disbarred, yeah. In my own case, after I fired him, he began representing Matthew Cole, who then ratted me out to the FBI and testified against me in the grand jury. So how he wasn't disbarred for that, let alone the Jeffrey Sterling case, I, I, I have no idea. So what he did, and, and Mark Zane has a lot of money because he represented the, the Lockerbie families in their suit against the government of Libya, and they won a billion dollars. So he's got loads of money. So he set up this so-called whistleblower center to, to represent whistleblowers. But if you, if you go outside the established channels, he'll rat you out to the FBI. 
He's just oh. not as he's not a real whistleblower attorney. Not at all. And um, I have a question. Like, is there like any mechanism for accountability? Like, if I was a CIA agent right now and there's a coup happening in a South American hypothetical country and you don't think it's right, is there a mechanism within the CIA where I can go and blow the whistle or Congress or is it? Well, t- technically there is. Realistically, no. Um, but technically what they what they teach you to do is if you the, first of all, there's a legal definition of whistleblowing. It's bringing to light evidence of waste, fraud, abuse, illegality, or threats to the public health or public safety. So if you're at the CIA and you see that the CIA is overthrowing a government, the law says that you can go to the inspector general and report it. The inspector general will investigate it. And if they deem your information to be true, the inspector then goes to the oversight committees. That's not how it works in real life. Um, in real life, you report it and you never get promoted again. You get fired. In some cases, you get prosecuted. That's just, that's, the, the, the system is broken in the CIA. Not just the CIA, but the whole national security apparatus. That's what Bill Binney and Tom Drake found out, right? When they tried to... Tom Drake is the, is, yeah, Tom Drake is the greatest example. Tom Drake was one of our country's foremost thinkers on the issue of internet privacy. And he was a high-ranking executive at NSA. When he blew the whistle on NSA uh, spying on American citizens, which was both illegal and a violation of NSA's charter, he did it exactly the way he was supposed to do it. He went through the chain of command. He went to the inspector general. He went to the general counsel. He went to the oversight committee. And they charged him with nine felonies, including seven counts of espionage. Now, the case fell apart because Tom was right and NSA was wrong, but he still lost his job, his security clearance, his pension, his family. He lost everything. Wow. So besides, I guess, leaking it to WikiLeaks or something like, like if you actually use the channels, you're actually going to go... You're not going to reveal what, what what's in the document. On top of that, you'll get prosecuted anyways, is what you're saying, right? Well, the thing is, is that all these people that you're revealing it to are cleared. That's why the system is set up the way it is. The IG is cleared. The general counsel is cleared. The oversight committee and, and committee staff members are cleared. You're supposed to go to those people. May I ask you a question about how security clearance is done in general? Because... I look through CIA documents all the time, like when I write a paper about history or anything, and I see mm-hmm. a lot of ridiculous things being classified, like articles from <laughs> The Economist, for example. Like, so. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yes, that are already in public right. domain. So how, how is the classification system done in the first place? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> it's done improperly. Uh, there, there was there was a guy, um, J. William Leonard, who was the classification czar in the George W. Bush administration. And even though he was in charge of all government, he's become he's become this beacon of hope for the rest of us. Everything is overclassified. Yeah, you're exactly right. If if you're reading an article from the Economist, it be classified especially retroactively. It's classified just because some idiot says it's classified. And then if he cl- classifies it even improperly, it has to either, or you wait 35, it's ridiculous. 
I've seen it so many times where public information is just press classified. So can you envision a system where we can actually have information that's actually a threat, alleged threat to national security classified instead of everything, the whatever, instead of such arbitrariness? And what no, would that information look I like can't see. in theory? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I can't see a situation like that because, and this is a very easy um, answer to give you, because literally everybody in the intelligence community has classification authority. So if I, and I've given, I've given, this, uh, I've given this example many times, um, my, my ex-wife was also a CIA officer. And if I want to meet her uh, for lunch, I send her an email and I say, hey, you want to have lunch? And I classify it secret. So why do I do that? Because everything's classified at the CIA. And then she will respond and she say, yeah, let's meet uh, at the deli at noon. And she classifies that secret. Well, multiply that by the, by the 2 million people who have top secret security clearances in the country. And you can see why we have 300 billion classified documents. Why is she classifying that? Is that like reflex at the point? Or? Yeah, it's, it's reflex. It's because everybody classifies everything. Now, in truth, my email to her should have been classified at the confidential level because I was undercover and I was using my real name. But oftentimes, well, all of us at the CIA have pseudonyms. So if, if she knew it was me and I'm using my pseudonym, let's say, you know, John Y. Smith, then it should have been unclassified, not secret, not confidential. That seems so, I don't know, so wildly dysfunctional. I mean, there's, oh, there's a method to the yes. madness of a lot of, I mean, like I get why the, the CIA is always overthrowing governments. I think it's evil, <laughs> but I understand it. The logic of this, well, I I'll tell you another thing. can't see it. When, when, I, <laughs> when I wrote my first book, The Reluctant Spy, My Secret Life in the CIA's War on Terror, uh, I sent the manuscript in for clearance, which I have to do. And um, right. they classified the entire book. Oh, my God. And then they said, yeah, literally every word in the entire book. And then they said, well, there's an appeal process if you disagree with our ruling. That- so I wrote back and I said, I said, Listen, <laughs> it's not classified that I was born in Sharon, Pennsylvania. It's not classified that my first wife spoke Greek. It's not classified that I went to George Washington University. And then they said, okay, chapters one and two are unclassified, but the rest is still classified. So then I had to go back again and say, the CIA application process is unclassified by its very nature because (laughs) applicants don't have security clearances yet. And okay, chapter three is unclassified too. So this went on for 22 months. And I ended up getting the entire book. Yeah, the entire book was was finally approved. But it's this knee-jerk reaction they have to classification that just paralyzes the whole system. So how much of that is just like bureaucratic laziness? Because it sounds like they were just getting you to do their job for them. (laughs) Yeah, most of it is democratic laziness. Most of it is democratic laziness. I'll I'll give you another example. In my second book, I sent it in for clearance, and they redacted one word. It was the name of a city. And so uh, I said, look, you know, this isn't classified. It was, it was carried in the, the name of the city was carried in the Pakistani press the, the day after the event that I was writing about. Everybody in the world knows that this is the city. No, they said they stuck to their guns. But instead of putting the name of the city, they said that I could write a major 
metropolitan area 30 minutes west of the Indian border in <laughs> central Pakistan. Lahore? Okay. <laughs> hey, you said that, not me. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that defies just all logic. Wow. Yeah, it does. And let me say one more thing about the CIA uh, clearance process. That clearance office is, is normally a dumping ground for people who can't cut it elsewhere in the CIA. And oh. um, <laughs> they're on the process, in the process of retiring. And you need to park them somewhere for two or three years. And they just stick them there. Right, because they don't just summarily fire you unless you're really on the outs. Like even when Brennan right. ran afoul of his superior, they still gave him time to find a job, right? I think I remember you talking yeah, about Yeah, they gave, him, they gave him six weeks. That's right. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Um, to remedial employees. Yeah. I have a quick question. Is it possible to have an ethical intelligence agency that's different than the CIA that exists now? I think it is possible. And I think that during the Clinton administration, we were headed in that direction. Bill Clinton um, instituted something at the CIA called a cull, C-U-L-L, where we were told to go through the files of literally every recruited asset in the world. And if any of them had any history of human rights abuses in their past, they were to be fired. And, and the CIA got rid of fully one third of their recruited assets because the Clinton administration really did take human rights seriously. Uh, that ended, of course, on 9-11. And uh, the pendulum has never swung back. But I think that uh, I think that things were really headed in the right direction in those years of the 90s. Would they have had to get rid of the dirty trick side? I mean, like the ops, split that off altogether from the agency or just get rid of well, it completely? No, n not all ops are, are dirty tricks. In fact, most ops aren't dirty tricks. Uh, but yeah, you do have those covert action uh, plans, those covert action programs whereby government are overthrown and and leaders are deposed and things like that. So yeah, I mean that that's a conversation that I think should be taking place on Capitol Hill, but uh, but it never has, at least not since 1975. Hmm. That was during the Church Committee hearings, right? Correct, correct. Yes. Um, but also like with the internet, like how much of it right now do you think is human, and how much of it is just an algorithm gathering data on all of us? Well, NSA is the one that uses the algorithms to gather data on Americans. The CIA recruits spies to steal secrets overseas. It's as simple as that. Oh, okay. That's a very simple explanation of what the CIA does. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is that easy. It really is that easy. You just recruit Why are they spies so bad to steal at secrets. It, though? What, like, I mean, well, like being surprised by the fall of the Soviet Union is, very, is a very yeah. weird position to be in since, I mean, we were behind it. <laughs> yeah, you could go back to the building of the Berlin Wall, uh, or, or even earlier than that, you could go back to the Berlin Airlift in 1948 to, to start documenting CIA analytic failures. Um, yeah, they, they miss everything. They miss the fall of the Berlin Wall. They miss the collapse of communism. They miss the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. They miss the, the Turkish invasion of Cyprus. I mean, you could just go on and on and on. Um, I would argue that they're collecting uh, intelligence on, on all the wrong issues. I mean, they missed 9-11, for God's sake. So, like, what should they have collected in 9-11, and what did they collect instead? Well, the, the information was actually collected. Uh, some of it was collected by the CIA. Some was collected by the FBI. 
but because of the rivalry between the two that stretches back decades, back to the creation of the CIA, uh, the computer systems were incompatible, and neither organization shared the intelligence it had collected with the other. And so the CIA knew that there were these terrorists who meant us harm. They were looking all over the Middle East and South Asia for them. The FBI knew that, that the terrorists were in the United States, but didn't know that they were planning anything. If we had just been able to put two and two together, there would have never been a 9-11. Oh, wow. I know that Elise Stefan said that he, um, is in his book, that uh, part of, he thinks that part of the reason the CIA didn't share the intel is because some mid-tier employees in the CIA were looking for a promotion by hoping to turn two of the hijackers as assets or something. <laughs> Presumably yeah, that's by true. having like Saudi intelligence approach them as go-betweens or something. Yes, that, that, that is true. Insane. Yes, uh, but that's how you get promoted <laughs> at the CIA. I mean, you don't get promoted by by not recruiting people. So um, you know, I think that that somebody or multiple people at that mid level in operations just didn't have an appreciation for for the danger and the severity of uh, of the situation. And thought, oh, you know, I'll make a run at these guys through the Saudis. Oh, maybe it'll take six months, maybe 12 months, and maybe I can get a promotion out of it in the meantime. Not thinking that they're here to, to blow up the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Wow. Blows my mind the 9-11 happened because of a couple of strivers looking for a pay bump. <laughs> but it was, a whole bunch of, it was a whole bunch of people just falling down on the job. And I mean from, from George Tenet and uh, Robert Mueller on down. I mean, these... These guys were just, they were just terrible. There was no cooperation. There was no connectivity between organizations. Everything was stovepiped, compartmentalized. And the next thing you know, we have, we have 3,000 Americans dead in one day. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you think the CIA dropping the ball on 9-11 was shocking, you should see the retainer fees that we're trying to get together for the lawsuit we're going to be doing against the CIA. So we ask you to go to historically.substack.com and smash that subscribe button. You'll get newsletters along with all of our podcasts, and you'll be helping your comrades sue the CIA. Do you think the CIA policy is significantly different under this president than under President Obama? More for, or no. Okay. No, not at all. No, the CIA's policy is to just be out there as a paramilitary organization now, killing as many people as, as they can. And the ones they can't kill, you know, if maybe they can snatch them or otherwise somehow neutralize them, that's what they do. It hasn't changed one iota from Trump to Obama before him and to Bush before him. But Obama ran on, I don't know, transparency and all that. So that's for me, yeah. that's the hardest to grasp. That's that was just a bad joke. <laughs> he never intended he never intended for there to be transparency. In fact, he was he was less transparent than George W. Bush was. He he prosecuted more whistleblowers, right, including you. Three times as many whistleblowers as all previous presidents combined. Yes. Gee, wow, that is unbelievable. And how do we like what I try to FOIA with the CIA? Like do, like they're very they take a long time and they very um, are very strict. You have to word your things very carefully in order to get even anything, even stuff from the 40s. Like, do you have any tips on people who are trying to do the FOIA requests? Oh, sure. Um, you have to sue them. They're not going to answer your FOIA request. 
not unless you sue them. And that's why the New York Times has filed hundreds of suits against the agency and BuzzFeed and the Washington Post. You have to file a lawsuit. Listen, I, I submitted a FOIA request five years ago. Uh, I wanted to write a, a, a short um, biographical look at an NSA employee from the 1950s who became a renowned science fiction writer. He wrote under a pseudonym. And he was one of these guys, he was a genius, but he was really tortured mentally and emotionally. Uh, and he ended up committing suicide. And it's a, it's a very sad, and very poignant story. So I wanted to write about it. And I filed a FOIA request. And, um, you know, the law says that they have 90 days to, to respond. Well, that was five years ago. And they still haven't responded. And they won't respond until I sue them. But I don't want to spend thousands of dollars suing the CIA to then get, you know, a handful of of documents from the 1950s. It's just not worth it anymore. And they hope that people like you will just go away. That explains a lot. Um, I mean, yeah, I've tried with many agencies and it's always the same thing. They're either hyper legalistic where they'll give you exactly what you ask for or like they'll try to kind of avoid giving you what you ask for. Um, But do you have any suggestions or anything on how we change the classification systems or the secrecy or how everything is run? Yeah. You know, it's actually a crime in this country to overclassify a document. It's actually a felony. Um, it's one of those many, many laws that's on the books that has never, ever been implemented. No one has ever been prosecuted for overclassification. And I think that if people were prosecuted for overclassification, everything would change. Everything would change. You know, we know from WikiLeaks how much information is classified when it never should be. Never. You know, travel cables, basic conversations, normal diplomatic business. It's illegal to classify a document to save an organization from from embarrassment. It's illegal to classify a document if it exposes a crime. And those kinds of things happen literally every single day. Okay, so there is hope in the future. And another thing is that we the people seem so distant, like we can't control any of this foreign policy stuff that's going on. Is there a method where we can take back the charge so that we're in control? The only way to do that is through the oversight committees. And they're not even really oversight committees so much as they are cheerleading committees. So, yeah, yeah. If if we had real overseers on the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, regular citizens like you and I could could force change. But those members of Congress aren't responsive to people like us. Nancy Pelosi was on the oversight committee during the torture times, right? Uh, She was ex officio because she was what was she? She was either Speaker of the House or she was. She was one of the leaders, uh, but uh, Jane Harmon was the was the chairwoman of the Intelligence Committee at the time. And all of them knew. <laughs> you know, it's funny too because when I blew the whistle, Pelosi and Harmon both came out and said that they didn't know anything about any torture program. And then reporters said, "Well, that can't be true because Harmon was the chairwoman of the committee." And she said, "Oh, yeah. Well, I remember." that there was a briefing scheduled, but I left early and my, um, my aide, when he was there to take notes, he, he must not have briefed me. So I didn't know there was a torture program. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. 
you had to approve the program. You had to fund the program. You had to authorize the program. That's what oversight is. So, I mean, it was these weak attempts to lie their way out of it and pretend that they just had no idea that any of this was going on when they were the ones that oversaw it. Absolutely. Like, we interviewed a guard guard from Guantanamo Bay, and he had actually blown the whistle by 2005 or 2006 that they were torturing people in Guantanamo Bay. So if that was public record, she should have had knowledge about that. Yeah, that was Joe Hickman. And, you know, Joe was one of those guys who was shouting it from the rooftops from the very beginning as soon as he found out about it, and nobody paid any attention to him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, yeah, it was him. Um, and, yeah, there were three people who were dead with their organs missing. And so it seems like there was a lot of public information that could have led Congress to an investigation. Oh, one question. You remember when Obama said, so we tortured people or whatever? Yeah, we tortured um, some folks. Yeah, okay, so what is the, uh, how did that impact the future, like th- with impunity and the fact that he didn't prosecute anyone? Yeah, that was, that, was like a, that was like a coded message that the CIA could do whatever it was and no one was going to be prosecuted. I, I guess war crimes are not statute of limit, whatever, so I guess they could be technically prosecuted in the future, right? Technically, they could. Well, if, if they're done as war crimes, the problem there, legalistically, how do you prosecute them? And the other thing is, uh, is that the elements, the criminal elements that make up an overall war crimes case, they're individual crimes, and they do have uh, a statute of limitations. So most of those, those limitations ran out. Um, at the tail end of the Obama administration, nobody is ever going to be brought to justice for the torture program. It'll never happen. Wow. That's really depressing. How intensive was it? Like, how many years was it? And how many people do you think are tortured with that program? My guess is that it's probably in the hundreds. At least we know that at least one person died from the torture, right? Uh, There were two that I was aware of uh, that died from the torture, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, This is like unbelievable. And how do you know that? I guess I know this is a conspiracy theory-ish thing, but since the CIA is so excited about overthrowing socialist governments abroad, how do we know they won't try it inside in America if we were to get, like, say, President Bernie Sanders? Oh, no. I mean, that's that's sedition. That's a death penalty case. Okay, that's good to know. You know, I, I remember when I was in college, I interviewed Senator... Daniel Inouye, who was a senior Democrat from Hawaii. And he said that the best, the the greatest date in American history was August 9th, 1974. And it was because President Nixon resigned at noon and the entire country just carried on business as, as normal. And that's the way a democracy is supposed to function. Any interference, whether it's by the military or the intelligence community or whatever, is sedition. It's a death penalty case. And uh, we've just never had anything like that in our history. I don't think the American people, no matter what their ideology, would stand for it. And I can't imagine it ever happening. That's all very comforting to know. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Um, what are uh, it's the a next, pleasure. Wait, what are the next projects you're working on? Oh, I got a, a new book coming out, my fourth book. It's coming out on, on January 21st, and it's called The CIA Guide to the Iran Conflict. So everything you ever wanted to know about Iran, 
that uh, the government didn't want you to know. There it is. I hope you can come back in January to talk about it when you're done publishing it. I look forward to that. Okay, well, thank you and have a great day. Take care. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.